Here at Cato, we often welcome people who promote uh, and defend freedom around the world. Uh, but it is not often that we have the privilege of welcoming heroes who have suffered both physical injury and financial ruin in defense of liberty. One such person is uh, Ben Freeth. He's the executive director of the Mike Campbell Foundation uh, and was involved with uh, the extensive agricultural enterprises on Mount Carmel uh, farm in central Zimbabwe prior to its takeover uh, by a senior member of the uh, Zimbabwean Politburo, Zimbabwean government. Uh, together, to, together with his uh, late father-in-law, Mike Campbell, the owner of Mount Carmel Farm, he rose to international prominence in uh, 2007 uh, when uh, they both took uh, President Robert Mugabe's government to court in the Southern African Development Communities Regional Court, the SADC Tribunal. Uh, this was due to the regime's ongoing attempts to unlawfully seize Mr. Campbell's farm for, um, and also uh, they took them to court for violating the SADC Treaty by denying access to the courts and for engaging in racial discrimination and violence against white commercial farmers and their farm workers. Mike, Mike and his wife uh, and Ben were uh, later abducted and badly tortured and uh, had their homes destroyed, um, including everything in those homes by fire. Mike and Ben's lawsuit was chronicled in uh, the award-winning 2009 documentary Mugabe and the White African. Uh, ben subsequently wrote a book also titled Mugabe and the White African and has recently completed a second book, When Governments Stumble. I would love to see the title saying When Governments Fail, but never mind. When Governments Stumble, Lessons from Zimbabwe's Past and Hope in Zimbabwe's Future. Uh, through the Mike Campbell Foundation, uh, Ben's main, main focus is on restoring justice, the rule of law, and human rights in Zimbabwe. For the past three years, he's been involved in uh, a campaign to save the SADC Tribunal uh, following concerted lobbying by President Mugabe, uh, which resulted in the tribunal being shut down uh, by the SADC heads of state, uh, thus denying individual citizens access to the court. Uh, before I hand it over to Ben, um, let's watch a, a short uh, four and a half minute video about some of the work that uh, Ben has been doing since uh, uh, the end of his uh, farming days. I am Ben Freeth, the executive director of the Mike Campbell Foundation. And I'm standing here in the remains of my home, the home that we built uh, on Mount Carmel Farm, the farm that my father-in-law built up, uh, a gem of Zimbabwean agriculture that produced many crops, employed many people, and conserved much wildlife. Uh, Mike spent his whole life uh, developing this farm we used to employ, my wife used to employ a hundred people in this place here, doing hand embroidery. Mostly the women from around the district who had no jobs. And now there's nothing. In the year 2000, we had the farm invasions unleashed against us and 
the whole population of rural Zimbabwe was sent into absolute turmoil with violence being meted out, out uh, terrible destruction taking place. Uh, and we decided that we had to do something about this, that we had to try to take our president to court and stop what was going on. Two weeks before the main case was due to take place in the International SEDEC Tribunal, we were abducted from this farm and we were taken off and we were very brutally beaten up. Mike never recovered from that very brutal assault. We set up the Mike Campbell Foundation after Mike died in order to try to continue the work that he started. We took a case to the African Commission on Human and People's Rights regarding the fact that the 14 heads of state in Southern Africa had closed down this tribunal undemocratically without legal process. So we're working with people like Desmond Tutu and John Sentamu to try to ensure that this SADC tribunal can be brought back. We are also taking that case further to the United Nations Human Rights Committee to try to take it to the highest place that we possibly can to put pressure on the system so that people can be protected once more. We've taken a further case to the, through the International Criminal Court, taking affidavits from farm workers particularly and farmers who have been dispossessed, who have had terrible things happen to them so that we can get justice, so that there can be accountability, so that this system of brutality can stop. We believe passionately in the rule of law, property rights, the Ten Commandments on which those things were founded. And we have seen how countries that have those things taken away from them become incredibly poor and incredibly hungry. If we bring back the rule of law and property rights, we will see our country start to go forward again and become wealthy and become well-fed and become well-educated. We, as the Mike Campbell Foundation, are doing whatever we can to help the victims of the injustice that is taking place. We are helping medically, we are helping educationally, where parents cannot send their children to school any longer. Uh, we take them on courses for foundations for farming to try to teach them how to farm in a situation where they have no access to finance, they have no tractors, they have absolutely nothing. This is where some of our workers' houses were. They were destroyed by fire. All their possessions were destroyed. Imagine being left with no home, with no income, with no hope. How do you survive into the future? How do you look after your children? How do you educate them? How do you clothe them? The 500 people on this farm that were left in that situation are the kinds of people that we are helping in the Mike Campbell Foundation. There are 20% of our population in Zimbabwe in this similar predicament. Our farm workers, the forgotten people. And it is these people that we are helping. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts
for helping us. Well, thank you all for being here today. Um, I was cutting it quite fine. The plane got in a little bit late, and uh, I've been traveling the last 36 hours. But on the GPS, when we got into the hire car, it said uh, that we were going to be arriving at 3.58. We got here at just after 4.01. So um, it, was, it was pretty good. In, in Africa, most of us are always a little bit late. Some of us very late. Anyway, I wasn't too late today. My story, I think we all learn from stories. We all learn from people who speak from personal experience. And I want to take you through a little bit of my story today. And I want to take you back to when I first started to understand what the rule of law and property rights actually were. I began to understand them not because I was in a country where these things were perfectly in place, but because I was in a place where they had never been. Back in 1995, a friend and myself decided to buy some mules and some donkeys. And we trekked 1,300 miles on foot through Ethiopia, the southern part, of, southern part of Ethiopia, going down the Omo Valley, where there had been civil war and brutal dictatorship for many years in that area. We were just to the east of us. We had Somalia, which was in total meltdown. We had southern Sudan, which was in a similar predicament just to the west of us. And hundreds of thousands of people had been killed in that area um, through the preceding years. And so there we were in Ethiopia, in a place where there were no roads, there had never been roads, where no cars had ever been able to get to those areas. It's amazing how you can get through incredible escarpments, down incredible escarpments with, with mules and donkeys. There was no electricity, no permanent buildings whatsoever, no shops of any kind, no currency, no schools, no doctors, no written language no administration, no laws, and no police force. And the people wore nothing but animal skins, uh, loincloths, sometimes no clothes whatsoever. And all, all the men, the one thing that they did have to show that we were in, at that stage, the 20th century, was the AK-47, and other weaponry. And on their arms, they all had tattoos, horseshoe tattoos, 
on their upper arms, denoting the number of people that they had killed. And one of the tribes that we walked through had a reputation for cannibalism. So it was a, it was a tough area to be walking through where people had never seen people like us before. And it was a very tough trek. And we were very fortunate to survive unscathed. But the only law that these people knew was the law of the gun and the law of the spear. And if they didn't shoot first in the constant running raids of stealing cattle and stealing women, their very lives were at stake and could be taken too, and often were. And so I started to understand what this foundational thing was during that time, that three months of walking through this area. I started to understand the importance of the rule of law, the importance of property rights being in place if people were to be able to go forward and live with security. Back uh, the following year, I got a job with the Commercial Farmers Union of Zimbabwe. It was essentially an office job, and I thought it was going to be the dullest job that I would ever do. I wasn't really an office sort of guy. <coughs> but within a year, the farm invasions had essentially began. 1,472 farms were listed for com compulsory acquisition by the state, which was about half of the most productive farms in Zimbabwe. And we were known at that time as the breadbasket of Africa. And then following that, we had the invasions begin, the lawlessness that characterized them, the violence, the intimidation. And we lived through a period of, of anarchy, essentially, on our farms. We had just built our house at that time, the house that you saw on the, on the video. Um, we started building that in 97 and, and, and we moved in in 1999, just in time for the farm invasions when they began in 2000. And I cannot describe to you adequately what it is like to live without property rights or the rule of law. I can't describe you, to you how it is to have government-paid thugs come around your house and take what is yours. In the United States, you've been blessed with an amazing constitution. You've been blessed with life, liberty, and property being protected. And we learned in Zimbabwe through that time what it was to not have protection of our lives, not have protection of our individual liberties, not have protection when it came to our private property. The rule of law was overthrown. And our president called us enemies of the state and though we got high court orders and Supreme Court orders that protected us, 
the invasions carried on in complete contempt, with no one ever getting arrested, no one ever being brought to justice. I can remember right at the beginning, I went to a farm, um, right in the beginning of the invasions, my our little son at that stage was three months old. Um, he is now just about to turn 15. So for the whole of his life, he's been living through this situation. And he was sit, he was in a carry cot in the in the back of the, in the back seat of the car, and we got to um, a roadblock on the farm manned by these thugs that had come to invade the farms, and there were some drums, and many people. Uh, they weren't armed with guns, but they were armed with all sorts of other weapons, spears and axes and um, rocks and. And we got to this roadblock and we said, can we come through? We want to see our friends. And uh, they said, get out of the car. And it was, it was a very threatening situation. And we realized that we had to get out of there very quickly. And an X came straight through my, my windscreen and I just... Uh, thrust my car into first gear, wheelied round, and rocks were just coming at us from all sides, axes, and it was an absolutely, uh, absolute miracle that we were unharmed. The, there was glass everywhere. Um, our little son had glass all over him, and it was our beginning, if you like, of the Kristallnacht, that we read about that took place in, in Nazi Germany. A few weeks later, David Stevens, who was a friend of ours, was under attack at his house and he went to uh, a police station, the local police station, to try and get refuge. He was abducted from the police station. The police did nothing to protect him. He was beaten very badly and then he was shot dead. And then after that, very shortly after that, Martin Olds um, was uh, in his house. He went out to meet a mob that had arrived early in the morning um, to try and talk with them. He was shot in the leg. He retreated back into his house. And he was a, he was a brave guy. He was, uh, had been a soldier. Um, he was a hunter. And he decided, well, what can I do? I need to try and protect myself in this situation. And he defended himself uh, while he hoped that help would come. Police were informed of what was taking place. Um, light aircraft flew overhead, one of his neighbors, um, to report what was taking place. And police merely put a roadblock to stop any help getting to him. And he ended up, in the end, he held out for several hours. He ended up, in the end, uh, with his house uh, being set alight. Uh, he ran a bath to try and get away from the heat. Um, and he was shot 
in the bath and his body was brutally beaten to a pulp. So how do you protect yourself without the rule of law? What do you do when people are allowed to surround your house and beat the drums all the way through the night and light fires on your lawn and slaughter your cattle and eat them and shout death threats at you? Imagine that in your own home here in Washington, D.C., in the United States of America. Imagine not being able to call on the police to protect you. Imagine the desperation. Imagine what would you do? Property rights and the rule of law was systematically destroyed. In Zimbabwe, we had had almost half of our land under property rights. And that was how we became the breadbasket of Africa. Gradually from 1981, 1980 onwards, the state started to purchase land. They didn't steal it at that stage. And we got to a situation in 2000 where from nearly 50%, only 25% of the land was in private hands. At this stage, we are looking at well over 90% of the land being in state hands, controlled and owned by the state. And we are having to send out the begging bowl every year to have our people fed. We, as a family, decided that we had to do something about the situation that we were facing. Many people decided that the only thing to do was to pack up and to leave. There was no hope, there was no future. But we decided that we had to somehow try to use the law to bring the law back. The rule of law is the foundation of society and the foundation of peoples and of countries. And without the rule of law, you're at the mercy of the strong men and the mob. Under dictatorship, we started to have the rule by law. The Supreme Court was invaded in a land case, and the judges had to rush out the back. The police did nothing to stop the invaders. The judges were intimidated. They were chased out of office. And new partisan judges who had received farms were brought into place. Zimbabwe's laws were then changed. Farmers were arrested and put in prison. Our crime, farming and living in our own homes. So we went to the Supreme Court all the same, even though we knew that we would lose in the Supreme Court. But then a week after our hearing, 
the SEDEC tribunal opened for business. It had been envisaged when the Southern African Development Community Treaty was signed back in 1992. And it was only in 2007 that finally it came into place, just after our Supreme Court case was heard. My father-in-law at that stage had just been arrested and faced a two-year jail term for committing the crime of farming and living in his own home. And we all faced similar sentences as well. And so we were able to go to the SEDEC tribunal on the basis that the rule of law was being taken away from us. The court of last resort was not protecting us, the Supreme Court, and we had exhausted all domestic remedies. Two weeks before the main case, we were abducted, and it was a very brutal scene. They broke my mother-in-law's arm very badly and beat her around the head. My father-in-law was beaten about 60 times to the head, and he never recovered. I also had a badly fractured skull, broken ribs, bruises all over me. And they got, during that night that they abducted us, they got my mother-in-law to sign a bit of paper to say that we would withdraw from the court. Well, by God's grace, we survived that abduction. Uh, my father-in-law wasn't obviously able to get to Namibia, to where the SEDEC tribunal was hearing the case in two weeks' time. But I managed to get there in a wheelchair. And we had the, the main case heard. On the 28th of November, 2008, we went back. And for me, it was one of the most memorable days of my life, the euphoria of hearing all those judges rule for justice in our situation, rule that what was taking place was wrong, rule that the Zimbabwe government must protect us and allow us to continue to live in our home and to continue to be allowed to farm on our property. We went ahead and we planted that season. That was 2008. And just as our crops were ready for harvest in 2009, our president had his birthday uh, where he often makes his speeches. And he said, we are not going to listen to the court. We are not going to abide by the decision that it has made. And so within a couple of weeks of that speech, suddenly we were reinvaded. We had thugs come and uh, chase my parents-in-law out of their home. Uh, one of our farm workers was very severely beaten that night, um, received a fractured skull, was thrown into a fire, and then was dumped on the police station floor 
by the thugs and put in jail. Another 12 of our workers were also put in jail, high security jail. And the thugs were allowed to continue to take over the farm, to steal all our crops, to steal all our tractors, to just steal all our diesel that was in the tanks, all, all our fertilizer that was in the sheds, all our chemicals that was in the chemical store, to steal our personal possessions. And then finally, to burn down, first of all, our house and several of our workers' houses, and then my parents-in-law's house. And I have reflected on all this a lot. And as Marianne said, I first wrote a book after the name of the film that was made about this court case, this David and Goliath battle that took place. And then I've written a second book, which I've got copies of here, When Governments Stumble. What should we do when we have governments that become predatory on the people? What are governments for in the first place? What do we do when governments don't do what they are supposed to do and they threaten life rather than protect it? Destroy liberty rather than encourage it. Take away property rights rather than give them to individuals. How do we overcome the overriding problem of fear in these situations? How can we help bring countries that are desperate desperately poor, out of poverty, by ensuring that individual lives and individual liberties and individual property rights are protected. What is our God-given duty in all this? I thank you. Thank you, Ben, for that um, extraordinary and uh, powerful speech, which I think uh, all of us will remember for a very long time to come. Uh, our second speaker, I am uh, uh, very honored to welcome to Cato, is Craig Richardson, uh, who's been writing um, about Zimbabwe for me very many years, including producing a uh, um, uh, definitive uh, analysis of uh, uh, the collapse of the Zimbabwean economy. Um, of which a little later. Craig Richardson is a professor of economics at uh, uh, Winston-Salem uh, State University and chair of the Department of Economics and Finance. He's the author of numerous articles um, about Zimbabwe, 
and the book to which I've alluded, which is the collapse of Zimbabwe in the wake of uh, the 2000 to 2003 land, land reforms, which he wrote in 2004. Um, he does consulting work with Hernando de Soto, president of the Institute for Liberty and Democracy in Peru. Uh, he is a frequently invited speaker on university campuses on the subject of property rights, both here and abroad. Uh, he has also contributed articles on economic development uh, for popular media outlets in the Wall Street Journal, Barons and Future. In 2013, he wrote a policy analysis uh, for this institute called Zimbabwe, uh, why is one of the least free economies growing so fast? And uh, you can pick up a copy outside. He continues to use Zimbabwe as a compelling case study uh, for investigating questions that were supposed to be resolved in economics one-on-one. -on -one. So with that, Craig, welcome you, to Cato. Thank you very much, Mary, and it's, it's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, I haven't uh, come as far as, uh, as Ben. Uh, I've, I came from North Carolina today, and glad I avoided uh, a lot of the, uh, the accidents that were on the way up on 85. But it's really an honor to be here uh, to share the podium with, with Ben today, and I really want to thank the Cato Institute as well. They were the ones uh, back in 2005 that invited me uh, to have a book forum for my book, and it, and it just created a tremendous amount of contacts for me, uh, including some visits uh, and invitations to Zimbabwe in 2006 and 2007. And it was in 2006 when I was uh, investigating some of my questions that I, I had written about in my book that I first met Ben. Um, and we really uh, didn't speak a lot because I was meeting with a group of commercial farmers. But... Um, I remember shaking his hand, and I also asked this group of farmers, who was really the last group. Um, there are only several hundred left out of two or 3,000, and this was sort of the beleaguered last group who were hanging on. And I remember in, in asking them in Harare, why are you all still here? What is keeping you here? And I'll never forget, um, one of the farmers there said, well, there's one thing we, we believe in, and it's the judicial system in Zimbabwe. This is the only thing we can hang our hat on. And we're going to stay here because we are, we're going to fight this case because we know it's right. And uh, sure enough, Ben's still fighting this case. He's gone beyond the courts of Zimbabwe to international courts. But there was a real conviction that um, impressed me and really started me to think about this connection about property rights and economic freedom. So I'm going to talk about that today in a little bit more of a bird's eye view. Um, and I think one of the things as Ben was talking about, it reminds me that uh, mo most of what we economists do, we talk a lot about <coughs> statistics, we talk a lot about numbers, and uh, we forget sometimes there are people behind these numbers. And I, I had a, a professor who told me, he said, remember, there's always behind every number, there's, there's a person. And here's the person right here. Here's one of the people right here. So there's... There's this very compelling intersection here between uh, statistics and real people. And I don't think Ben mentioned he's still living in Zimbabwe. So, uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting, uh, many interesting stories. So um, let me go here and just show you a, a chart that kind of gives you just a quick backdrop about where Zimbabwe has been and where it's going. Um, what I'm showing here is GDP or levels of economic output. 
And frequently economists use percent changes, but I think it's instructive to show, in fact, the actual output. And I've separated it out into three periods, which I think uh, makes some sense because there's three definitive differences in, in how Zimbabwe has grown and collapsed. So the first period is this green period where you can see fairly consistent, steady upward growth. And that was a period that, as, as Ben talked about, as he said, Zimbabwe is known as the breadbasket of Africa. So during that period of time, there was respect for rule of law. There was property rights. There were uh, farms that were bought and sold on markets. And there was a fair amount of foreign investment coming into, into the country. And, and so there were a lot of people that were fairly bullish on Zimbabwe. And that's not to say it was perfect. It certainly had its issues and problems and human rights violations and so forth. But nevertheless, there was a fairly positive growth trend through that period. Then you can see in the red period a significant collapse. And this collapse is, in fact, um, timed with the seizures of thousands of farms. And this is what I got interested in, because when I was first writing about Zimbabwe in the early 90s, it was called the Jewel of Africa. And when I came back to look at it in early 2000, I became very intrigued and uh, troubled by this very, very quick collapse. And that's where I started to write a lot of my, my papers and do a lot of my research. What caused that collapse, and why did it happen so fast? Now, indeed, you can look at the farms. And there were about three to 4,000 farms, large commercial farms exporting tobacco, in fact, to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, my hometown, where RJR is located. One of the best farms was, was exporting right to Winston-Salem. World-class farms selling mangoes, flowers, you name it. But they were only 18% of the economy. So how could 18% cause such a dramatic collapse? Well, the answer is that these farms were tied to many, many other things. They were tied, for, for example, to fertilizer companies. They also uh, were tied to cotton companies that were manufacturing clothing. And so the banks were tied to the farms. There was lots and lots of things tied to these farms. So although these 3,000 farms were expropriated, they actually caused this incredible cascading ripple effect um, that caused the Zimbabwean economy to collapse very quickly. The collapse of the economy, um, and I'm not sure whether the government planned on this or not, but I don't think that they did. One of the things that they, they, I don't think they planned on was that a significant part of their tax revenue came from the sales of exports like tobacco, which created hard currency for them. Now, when they knocked out a significant part of their, their sector, they lost tax revenue. And this is where the slide really starts to accelerate, because without having tax revenue to fulfill all of their expenditure needs, they begin printing money. Okay? And that's how they solve the hole. They start printing money. And they start printing money faster and faster. So in 2007, I went to, uh, to visit Zimbabwe, stayed in a downtown hotel, the Meekles. I ordered dinner that night. I got a bill for $3 million. Um, and, uh, and I tipped the waitress 500000 and felt really good about that. But it really wasn't worth that much. The money was losing value day by day. The next year when I returned, we were in the billions of dollars. The notes were demarked in billions. And by 2008, the notes were in the trillions of dollars. So the end of the road was coming fast. And Zimbabwe could not print money fast enough to, to fill these holes of this deficit. And, and so what happens is you can see a significant change right here, which is something significant happened, which is 
they ended up, the inflation was, made the record books, I think second highest in history. At the end, prices are doubling every single day. Um, and at that point, the end is, is nigh and they, and they accept, they go on to the US dollar and the, and the South African rand, okay? Now, just like Milton Friedman would have predicted, immediately inflation was shut off, just like turning off a fire hose. So the inflation went from the gazillions of percents a year to 2% a year in, in less than a week, okay? So the, the inflation rate went down very dramatically, and you have this bump up in economic growth. Now, a lot of commentators saw this and, of course, said, well, yeah, we had dollarization here, and there's the growth, so therefore dollarization caused the growth. And I wasn't really satisfied with that answer. Now, sure, it stopped the free fall. I totally agree with that. But it seems to me that a country needs more than a stable currency to grow. After all, Zimbabwe, if you look here, they've had a big bump up in growth. But if you look at the days to start a business, these are five other countries, sorry, six, Angola, Chad, Ethiopia, Mozambique, Nigeria, and Rwanda. These countries were the five of the 10 fastest growing countries in the world in the last decade, okay? Zimbabwe was not. But surprisingly, by 2010, 2011, Zimbabwe now becomes faster growing than all of these other countries. The question is why? These countries, on the whole, are lowering the days to start a business. Angola, 119 to 68 days. Chad, the only exception. Ethiopia, 32 to 9. Mozambique, 153 to 13. Rwanda, opening a business from 18 days to 3. That's like Hong Kong. That's incredible. Okay? So we have a standard story about economic growth, and this fits our story. But Zimbabwe doesn't because their days to start a business along with a whole host of other indicators is horrible, okay? It's 97 to 90, okay? Very little change. If you look at, moreover, an index that I created of economic freedom, rule of law, and governance, the blue line is Zimbabwe. You can see over time through 2007, and it's still in the bottom, one of the worst performing countries in the world relative to these other five, six countries sometimes called the Lion Kings, these six fast-growing African countries, slow but steady improvement in rule of law. What's going on with Zimbabwe, and why is it growing in spite of itself, seemingly in spite of the, the recipe, the classic menu for economic development that we like to talk about? Well, let me just give a quick recap, because... Right. Um, keep to the mic, please. Oh, because, um... OK. Okay, so let me just give a quick recap here about, because it's funny how you have to go back to Econ 101 to understand what's going on with Zimbabwe. But remember that GDP has four components, household spending, business spending, net exports, and government spending. And when we talk about GDP growth in the United States, we're generally talking about household spending and business spending growing. And if we see GDP, we attribute it generally to those sectors. Government spending tends to be pretty stable, so we use gross domestic product as a way to talk about the health of the economy. Okay? But one of the things we have to be careful about when we, we look at GDP and we look at GDP growth around the world, we can't necessarily associate 
high GDP with, quote, healthy economic growth. We have to look a little bit more at the underlying structure. Why is this economy growing the way it is? And that's why I wanted to take a deeper look into what was happening with Zimbabwe. Okay? Well, if you look at government, look what happened between 2008 and 2014. That bar, the total height of that bar is government expenditures. Okay? It's absolutely stunning. When they dollarize, they suddenly have a lot of cash coming in, tax revenue coming in, and they're spending it incredibly fast. So um, whatever year you take from 2009 to 2014, about triple in terms of these, the expenditures. Now, what's driving that? Well, the blue bars are the government wages, okay? Somebody is getting more and more money. The government workers are getting paid larger and larger and larger amounts. And the latest is that government wages are consuming 75% of government, okay? So we have a, quote, healthy economic growth in Zimbabwe, 9%, but what's happening is, in fact, two-thirds of it is driven by government spending. Two-thirds is driven by government spending. This, whoops, the, um, here you can see the average, I did some calculations, and this is more in the paper, but the average amount contribution is 64.5% over those three years that is driving GDP. Only 35% is from the private sector. So it's largely artificial. Moreover, what's, what's even more intriguing is that Zimbabwe is running deficits. Now, hmm, okay, we're used to deficits. We talk a lot about deficits in this country. But wait a second. Zimbabwe is using the US dollar. How can they run deficits? We have to go back and remember, how do you run a deficit? If you can't print up your own money, how do you cover a deficit? If you can't sell bonds, how do you cover a deficit in Zimbabwe? That's the traditional way we do it in the United States. We sell bonds. People either buy those bonds or the Federal Reserve buys the bonds, in which case we're printing money. Those are the traditional ways to, to finance a deficit. Zimbabwe is hamstrung. They cannot print their own money. So how, if you look at all the data, they're running bigger and bigger deficits. Well, there's three things they can do. Number one, they can start to melt down their assets, okay? What they did, they got a loan from the Chinese and they said, in exchange for a loan, we, if we default, you can have our airport at Victoria Falls. They're getting foreign aid grants, $770 million when I started tracking down grants. They can't get loans anymore, but they can still get grants, okay? So they're getting grants that are helping the bottom line. But here may be the most intriguing thing of all. You can sell stamps. Now, that's strange. If you think about it, stamps, how does the US government makes money by selling stamps? A very small amount of money, okay? But when I looked into the Zimbabwe government, something else happened. Here is by the Atlas of Economic Complexity, which is a wonderful graphic, uh, and it's a wonderful tool from MIT and Harvard. This is the exports of Zimbabwe. Number one, postage stamps. $500 million worth of postage stamps were exported. Bigger than nickel, bigger than gold, bigger than tobacco. How come? This is a mystery. 
that I've been working on many, many hours, many, many phone calls. The British used to buy several hundred thousand collectors every year. Not enough to account for this, okay? There's something very strange going on. If somebody in the audience has the answer, please contact me after this, because there's something very strange. It's not, um, it's, there's no one in, I've contacted government, nobody uh, will answer it. It is not in any of the official government budgets, yet it shows up as export data. Here is even tracking the gold bars are tracking the sales of postage stamps in which they jump from 2003, nothing, over time up to a high of um, their $550 million, which coincidentally was the size of the government deficit that year. So there's a mystery, and I don't have the answer. In 2012, they mysteriously go away. I don't know what happened. So there's a lot to the very compelling about Zimbabwe. There's a lot that intrigues me. There's always a mystery around the corner. And there's always hope, too. And I, and I know Ben, he told a lot of terrible stories. Yet Ben's still in Zimbabwe. So he wouldn't be there if he didn't have hope for the country. And I have hope for the country as well uh, when I see the good work that, that Ben and other people are doing there. And I think if you take a trip there, you, you'll see the incredible amount of human capital that is there, the incredible amount of friendliness and the high education levels, highest literacy rate in the subcontinent, 92%. Um, there's a lot here. Um, there are some nice shots of downtown Harare um, that, that indicate what, it, what a beautiful city it is. So there is a basis for rule of law. There is a memory. Let's say it's better than a country that never had it. There's a collective memory of what it used to be. And I think that's worth something right there. It has tremendous, enormous uh, natural resources and world-class tourist attractions. Good roads and infrastructure. And it borders South Africa. So right there, you have a nice commercial um, access as well. So where is Zimbabwe going from here? That's a good question. But it definitely bears watching. and. Uh, and and it's, it's something I'm going to be continuing to monitor. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, let's open it to Q&A. Um, yes, sir. Thank you. Um, very interesting presentations. Um, uh, my name is Doug Brooks. I was a um, high school teacher back in 1984 and 85 in, in Zimbabwe in uh, Kambazuma Township. Um, my understanding is the British had set up some sort of land reform program uh, at the end of the war. Uh, and I always wondered what happened to that, because uh, that would have perhaps created a peaceful way of, and, and lawful way of handing the, the uh, breaking up the larger farms into smaller farms and ideally helping more people. Yeah, what, what happened um, as a result of the Lancaster House uh, Constitution that was negotiated in 1979 um, in London was that uh, land was able to be bought um, but not compulsory acquired up until uh, that expired 10 years later. Um, then the compulsory acquisition 
uh, Act was brought in, into place, the Land Acquisition Act in, in 92. Um, but up until then, land was being bought. And in fact, government actually bought 6.7 million hectares of land, which is a sizable amount of land, uh, about nearly 20% of the total land area of the country, was bought on a willing seller, willing buyer basis with no, no quibbles. You know, what, the big thing was, though, that the people that were then given the land were not given any property rights. So they did not hold any title deeds for that land that they were then given and were there really at the whim of the party people in the area or, or higher up, um, you know, which, which doesn't create an incentive to invest. It doesn't create uh, security for um, the financial institutions to be able to then uh, lend money so that dams can be built, irrigation systems can be put in, um, and all the rest of it. So, um, Yes, there was significant amounts of land that were bought. Uh, the British government at one stage was putting in um, every, every dollar Zim government put in, then the British government would do the same. Um, but that then finally ran out uh, in the late 90s um, because of the fact that many of the people that were giving, being given the land were actually political chefs. They weren't farmers. Um, and, and so that money dried up from the British government. Um, and it was 99 when the political opposition, the movement for democratic change was, was formed. And we had about 20% of the population of, of Zimbabwe working on the commercial farms. And, and obviously those people had to be intimidated ahead of the election in, in 2000. And so that's when really everything started to go awry in this bid to control people. That's essentially what it was all about. If you have people living in insecurity where they can be kicked out of their home at any time, it's far easier to control them than when they are independent people in their own rights, holding their own title deeds, living in their own homes, securely able to develop um, as individuals rather than as vassals of a feudal system. Um, so. Yes, it, it, it did start, but it never went forward on a basis where individuals were given property rights, unfortunately. I think it's also worthwhile mentioning that uh, your farm was acquired after uh, the transition, uh, after, after the transfer of power. It was acquired under Mugabe's uh, leadership. Uh, the government never expressed any interest in the farm itself. In fact, there is an academic called Hill, I can't remember his first name, who estimated that 80% of the farms in Zimbabwe changed Jeff. hands. What's his name? Jeff Hill. Jeff Hill, um, who estimated that 80% of the farms in Zimbabwe changed hands uh, under Mugabe's leadership, therefore removing the, the, the obvious uh, criticism which he was using against the commercial farmers. Yeah, so uh, we, we actually, you know, when when farms changed hands, you first had to offer that farm to the Zimbabwe government and then receive a certificate of no present interest signed by the minister before you could then sell it to another private individual. Um, and and yeah, as Marion says, 80% of those farms received these letters from the minister saying that um, the farm could change hands, the government wasn't interested. 
uh, we'll go to the gentleman over here. Um, actually, let's let's take uh, one in front, and I, I promise I will get to you. We have plenty of time. Thank you, Mr. Fred. When I heard your story, it's reminding me exactly what happened in my country, in Mauritania, in 1989, against people so-called Fulani, who happened to be Jewish. And uh, what I'm wondering is, do you think that only by going to the tribunals, to the rule of law, and maybe not applying or uh, adding the political dimension, you can solve the problems? And I have a question for Mr. Richardson, is to elaborate a little bit about the relation between China and Zimbabwe. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously there has to be political will. Um, you know, we all understand that rule of law is only as good as the people that are in place able to apply that law. Um, and unfortunately, we at the moment, we've got an incumbent in place who is there to stay in power at any cost for however long it takes for him to die. <laughs> He's 90 years old now. He believe it's getting closer, but um, he carries on. Um, so the, how do you get involved in the political process um, to ensure that the rule of law is then applied? And I, and I think really the answer is through civic education, through um, trying to ensure that even though rights are being trampled, people do stand up for their rights. You know, the temptation when rights are trampled is to say, well, there's no point in even trying. There's no point in even trying to go to the court. There's no point in even trying to publicize what's taking place to, to try and get uh, uh, political pressure um, going. But I believe that very strongly that we have to make sure that we stand up for rights, even when, when we know that they are not going to be um, upheld. And it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of grit. It takes um, a lot of determination and being able to see the perspective of the future rather than just the short-term goal. Um, but it's, uh, it, it, it's hard and it's a long, rocky difficult road. <laughs> you asked about China. Um, yeah, so, so China is very interested in the natural resources. Um, Zimbabwe has the second largest platinum holdings in the world. And, um, and because China is traditionally not um, been too concerned about human rights issues, there's lots of deals that, that can be made more easily with China. And Mugabe has said, we are going to look east with our friends with the east rather than formally with the West. So the relationship between China and Zimbabwe is, is a little bit uncomfortable with respect to the, the people of Zimbabwe. I think there's, there's a feeling of um, a lot of imported Chinese goods that are of mixed quality, taking jobs from away from Zimbabweans. The Chinese firms that locate there often bring their own workers. They're, they're also Chinese who are farming in Zimbabwe. So. There is a, um, I think of a mixed bag about that. If you ask the, you know, the sort of man on the street versus the government, 
Um, and the government at the same time is going back and asking for loans from China. But I think the last time they were snubbed. <laughs> so, Craig, let me ask you, uh, let me have a follow up question on this um, to, to try to understand the economics of this. Um, why would you need to actually have a physical possession of a platinum mine if you are China? I mean, if you, if, you, if you produce less platinum, the world price of platinum, it's a global market, is going to decline. If you produce more, it's going to increase. If you are going to use it for yourself, you're just going to displace the platinum produced somewhere else. Um, is it just mercantilist thinking on the part of the Chinese? Are they simply confused about how the global economy works? In other words, are we not, are we instead of seeing the Chinese as some sort of, um, uh, incredibly smart investors. What if they are just? What if their economics is wrong? Well, you know, I think that they they come in with an idea. They have a lot of experience on how to do these things back in China, and so I think they they want a turnkey operation. And when they come to Africa and they come to Zimbabwe, they bring all their personnel, they bring their capital, and and they bring it right to right to the country. So. I don't know if it's so much the ownership, but they want ownership over the operations, I think is, is what they would say, so that they can control it, they can monitor it. And, and, and then um, I think that they are, the Zimbabwe government is making underground deals with rights to the assets, that's my guess, is they're, they're making, to solve this deficit problem, and maybe even those are the stamps. Who knows? But the, you know, there is some way that they're they're making they're selling assets to cover these growing deficits. So, I think I think the Chinese basically want control over the operations, not necessarily over the property itself. So it's risky investments, very risky investments. Gentleman in the back. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Todd Wiggins. It's a pleasure to uh, hear this story and certainly enjoyed the presentation, the visual presentation to um, show us what your area and your house looked like. As a real estate investor, I guess if you can look at it that way, would you have been better off being closer to the center? And is there property rights closer to Harare or downtown? Or is there real estate development? Is there homes for sale? Or, I mean, is it traditional like what we do here in the West? Yeah, within the towns themselves, property rights have continued to hold and um, you know, particularly in the capital, in Harare, uh, house prices are actually um, very high. You know, there's a lot of foreigners that come in, uh, diplomatic missions, aid organizations, uh, and that sort of thing that pay big money for for rentals, you know, kind of $2,000 a month for a, for a house, um, which, which is a lot of money in, in, a, in a poor country. Um, the... What's happening on the outskirts of the towns uh, in the sort of peri-urban areas is that um, supporters of the ruling party are being given stands um, and allowed to develop those stands even though there's, there's no water or sanitation or electricity or, or anything like that. It's part of the, the rewarding of those people. So um, on the outskirts of, of the towns, property rights are a problem. But within the main areas of the towns, uh, those property rights so far seem to be holding. 
Interesting. Plenty in the middle. Uh, Mr. Richardson, if it's not the uh, Chinese that are buying the postage stamps, uh, if you recall, or maybe you don't know, in this country for a while, uh, postage stamps were the medium of delivery for LSD, so maybe they've got something going there. And sometime you've got to tell me what you spent with the meal that you spent $3 million for. But um, <clears throat> My question that concerned me was Mr. Freeth's comment that the... Uh, um, basis of constitutional law came first God-given and then from the Ten Commandments. And I can't figure out how you got there. Maybe you can have a read of, of this book, <laughs> which will give you a better understanding of my thought processes in it. But, um, you know, it's quite interesting going back and looking at, at the Jewish nation um, and seeing how they went into slavery, obviously, in Egypt as a group of brothers, 12 brothers. Um, they came out of slavery 400 years later as a nation of 2 million people. Um, and the first thing that they were given before they crossed the Jordan River, before they had spent the 40 years in the wilderness even, um, on Mount Sinai was the Ten Commandments. Um, and two of those Ten Commandments actually spoke strongly about property rights. Do not steal, do not covet. What we see in Zimbabwe taking place is the greed of man is allowing people to covet with their eyes and then to steal. And the greed is, is absolutely phenomenal when the rule of law is allowed to be broken down so that those things don't matter anymore. Um, and I believe that at the bottom of much of law is and much of who we are and the rights that are so important is this thing of property. They define how we are able to develop as individuals. And when they are taken away, we as individuals find it very difficult to be able to develop. But I, I encourage you to have a read of this book. I, I could go on for a while. <laughs> Question in the front. Oh, thank you. I, um, I must confess, in my misspent youth, I spent early 81 in um, Salisbury, Harare. And one of my proud possessions in my uh, basement is a, uh, by a 12 by 12 copper, copper map, you know, one of those raised tourist things. And it says Southern Rhodesia. <laughs> I got the last one in the store. But my qu question is, I'm trying to remember, is uh, Mugabe's base, base of support more tribal than political ideology? And if that's the case, when he passes, what will ever actually change? I, I seem to remember reading that it's more, more tribally based than uh, political ideology. Could, could you comment on that? Well, certainly the reason why he was um, voted in as prime minister in 1980 as opposed to Joshua Nkomo was on the basis of his tribe. Joshua Nkomo was a nationalist leader um, 
before Mugabe and should have been uh, the, more, the more senior guy. But uh, during the Bush War in the 70s, um, there were two armies. Basically, there was Zipra that was funded by the, the Russians. They based themselves up in Zambia. And then there was Zonla that was based in Mozambique. Um, that was uh, led by Mugabe and his group. And, and the one was Matabidi and the other was um, Shonas. Um, and Mugabe obviously comes from the majority tribe and so was able to um, retain power and then entrench power and ensure that he stayed in power um, right up until the present. So, um, yes, We've got a situation where, where tribalism obviously was a big factor in him coming to power. But I think as far as the ideology is concerned, um, the people want change. The people want a system where they can develop. And, and, and already well over a quarter of our population has voted with its feet and, and walked out of the country um, and said we cannot live in a country that does not have the rule of law, that does not promote the things that we want. We will rather go to places where we can develop as human, being, human beings and have uh, our economic freedoms at least um, rewarded by getting good wages and that sort of thing. So um, I, I think when it comes to it, the, it, it's not a, it, the, the ideology um, within the hearts of the people is, yeah, we want the modern system. We want what uh, has ensured that places like the United States and, and Europe have um, been able to, to, to grow. We want those, the, the, those fundamentals that um, uh, allow people to progress and wealth to be created. How much support does Mugabe and ZANU-PF still retain amongst the ordinary people, would you say? I mean, it is substantial, right? It is um, certainly not amongst educated people and not amongst the town people. Uh, but in the rural areas, it's very easy to control people. Um, people that are living where their house can be burned down at any second, um, where they can be beaten up and they know that no one will protect them. Um, it's very easy to get their, those people to support the party. Um, but it's not a support from the heart, it's a support out of fear. And, um, you know, that's, that's a huge thing to, to break in our country, this, this system of fear that is so entrenched now um, over so many years. Uh, but we need to break it. We need to break the fear and be able to speak out and to do things to protect people and ensure that their rights are upheld. Right. Um, actually, let's take uh, one over there. Uh, right here, uh, Todd Moss. Thanks, uh, Todd Moss with the Center for Global Development. Uh, Craig, there, there's a small group of British academics that's trying to make the case that the farm invasions and seizures haven't been a total disaster and that a lot of the farms are actually doing quite well, the, the schoons and, right. and crowd. I don't know if, if, if you want to comment on, on some of that. Um, and then, Ben... Um, you're here in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, what are you looking for from the United States? Uh, Zadera is still on the books. 
Um, even if they paid off their arrears at the bank and fund, I don't see the core shareholders allowing this government to let, to borrow again from the international financial institutions. We still have travel and financial sanctions against uh, designated individuals. The basic uh, and the you know the U.S. did not uh, accept the 2013 election. Mugabe was one of a very short list of leaders not invited to the summit in a, in August. U.S. is kind of standing back and waiting to see if Zim will burn itself out and there, if there's an opportunity for U.S. to re-engage. But what are what are people in Zimbabwe looking for from the United States uh, in terms of policy? All right. Um, yeah, Professor Schoons from England has been writing about the uh, the rebound of Zimbabwe in the agricultural sector and. I'm an academic who keeps an open mind. I always go and I don't have preconceptions, even if I've been spending a lot of time working on something, I, I still want to see what somebody's done. So I went back to, to look at what Professor Scones has done. And um, so what he did was he lived in one area of Zimbabwe, in a farming area, for, for many years and tracked the um, agricultural output of this area. It was, a, it was actually a very small area. And um, in that particular area, um, what had done pretty well, it was, uh, uh, I think it was a small scale commercial farming area and growing tobacco and so, so forth. Uh, but the problem that I had with his work was, uh, if you looked at it as a, in, in that sort of microcosm, what he tracked actually was fine, but what he did was he extrapolated out to the entire country without measuring. He took that and said, well, if it's like this here, then it's like this everywhere. And um, he, he, I think he just, he took his conclusions way too far. That's my first issue. My second is that I think a lot of people, and he's not the only, but a lot of people in economic development make the following assumption, that people in Africa want to farm. <laughs> and, and I don't know that that's an accurate assumption. I think people, the majority of people want to get off the farm like they did in the United States. We have only 2% of our population farms. And, most generations, when they have the um, ability to, to take up something else, um, they do. I mean, let's face it, farming's hot, risky, tiring work, and there are a few people that are really good at it. But folks like Schoons assume that if all we can do is figure out a way to get these guys to farm, we've got all the problems solved. And I think you're not thinking big enough because the people I met in Zimbabwe want to be software engineers, they, you know, they want to start their own businesses, they want to be accountants, and all these different things. And so I, I find that's the real problem, is this limitation of scope about what's possible. Helen Sussman Foundation uh, did a uh, uh, public opinion survey in Zimbabwe in 1999, I think it was, or 98, uh, where they questioned how many people in Zimbabwe actually wanted to be on a farm. And, it, and, and land reform came as the least of the priorities right. that people had. And I, if memory serves well, something like 9 or 12 percent of people um, of working age actually wanted to be um, on the farm. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, they, they just um, carrying on a little bit from, from what Craig said as well on, on um, Ian Schoons' research. The other thing that, that Ian Schoons does not do is compare what the farm was producing before to what it is producing now. How many people were employed before to how many people are employed now. He doesn't even, he doesn't look in any way about what, 
the farm was doing. So he takes it from a zero base. And he, he says that when the farm was taken over in 2002 or whatever, he assumes there was nothing produced. And then there has been investment because the guy has bought a scotch cart, um, has maybe got two oxen, um, and therefore he says it's a, a, a success. Um, but I, I, I cannot understand as a non-academic um, how he, he can honestly make a comparison without looking at the situation beforehand. Um, and I don't know why the, that hasn't really been pointed out, as far as I understand, in academic circles when his papers are looked at. So he constantly gets quoted, um, but I, I, I really have a problem in, in looking at his work as, as being honest. Um, going back to why I am here in the States right now and what America can do, um, I, I think America has stood very strong on the Zimbabwe issue. And I'm, I've been very impressed with the way that America has stood. You know, the European Union at this stage have taken away all the, um, the individual targeted restrictions on uh, all the people that have committed gross human rights violations, apart from on the president and his wife. Um, they are looking on the 1st of November, they've got a meeting where they're looking at direct government support uh, to the tune, I think, of 320 million euros over the next five years. Um, so they are, the European unions are taking it from a different angle. And I believe that the Zimbabwe government has not shown good faith enough for them to be doing that. You know, the, there are still gross human rights violations taking place. The rule of law is not in place. There's various people, as I speak, um, who are taking over farms, for example, the few farms that, that are left in private hands, um, taking them over against high court orders, orders even, um, you know, with no, with no regard for the rule of law. And the European Union should not be rewarding that, that sort of behavior, um, quite frankly, uh, and, and giving government money to be able to carry on that sort of thing, because it's not going to help the country in the future. Um, I think the United States needs to uh, look at ways by which it can um, bolster pressure upon the Zimbabwe government. You know, one document that I've just drawn up actually um, is a, a document that looks at the racial discrimination taking place. Mugabe actually signed the United Nations um, uh, convention for the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination back in 91. Obviously, apartheid was in place to the south at that time. Um, but what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And if, uh, you know, ra racism, we all know, is something that's abominable, it's wrong, it's, it does not help anything in a country. It cannot be institutionalized. It, hate speech should not be allowed to, to continue. Uh, we've got an international judgment from the SADC tribunal to say 
that racism has been taking place. And the international community needs to invoke things like the International Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination to stop the continued racial attack that, that is taking place in Zimbabwe. Um, we cannot think that just because it's white people that are the victims, then nothing should be done. Um, whoever they are as the victims, we should stand by and say, this is wrong. This cannot continue to happen. Um, and I believe that the United States can, can do that um, and make a complaint. There's an 18-member committee that sits twiddling its thumbs most of the time in the United Nations um, that needs to investigate and put pressure on the government to stop this sort of thing from being allowed to continue to take place. Uh, there needs to be accountability. And so long as um, the Zimbabwe government is allowed to continue to get away with things, it will get away with things. But we all know that you add a bit of pressure, they always pull back a bit. Um, and, and we need to use whatever pressure we, we can use to stop uh, the continued rights abuses that take place. Thank you very much. We've got to wrap it up, but uh, Ben and Craig will be upstairs at the reception, and you're all welcome to join us. Thank you very much to you both. Thank you. Thank you.